So it's Pentecost Sunday. Let me invite you to open your hands up towards heaven like this. And just this is Pentecost Sunday. We celebrate and remember that the Holy God sent the Holy Spirit to live inside of us and change us and give us power to live. So just whisper to the Lord, Lord, fill me the Holy Spirit, Lord. Fill me with your power now. And so, Lord, we corporately together this, this day, we invite you to fill this place with your presence and your glory and fill us, Lord, that our ears might be open, our eyes might be open. And as we open scripture, Lord, we might meet you, the living God. Transform us and shape us, Lord, and make us the gift that you intend for the world. We pray this in Jesus' name. And everybody said? All right. Thank you, everybody. Please be seated. Thank you, worship team. Welcome. My name is Pete. I'm one of the teaching pastors here at New Life. And uh, we have been in a series on the book of Ephesians that's been called Practicing Resurrection. So uh, uh, I'm going to pick it up in chapter 5. And our theme for today is seeing God in the fog. All right. Seeing God in the fog. And I want to ask if you've got a Bible or a phone to pull out to Ephesians chapter 5, which we're going to read in uh, a few minutes here. Howard Thurman uh, was born in Florida, 1899, an African-American community. Uh, and he was influenced by, uh, for Christ by his mom and, and, more importantly, his grandmother, who lived through slavery. And he went on to become a pastor, a writer, philosopher, you know, had a profound influence in American culture, people like Martin Luther King Jr. and others. And his work, uh, in particular, was about finding our true identity in God alone and only God, especially in the light of his day, of his context of racism and oppression. And uh, one of his most famous works is called Jesus and the Disinherited. And here's what he writes, and it's a great introduction, as you'll see, to where we're going to go in Ephesians 5 uh, today. He wrote this, The awareness of being a child of God tends to stabilize the ego and results in new courage, fearlessness, and power. When I was a youngster, this was drilled into my head by my grandmother. Thank God for grandmothers, all right? The idea was given to her by a certain slave minister who held secret religious meetings with his fellow slaves. How everything in me quivered with the pulsing terror of raw energy when she would come to the triumphant climax of the minister. She would preach the minister's sermon to him. You are not, a, and I won't say the word, you are not a, you are not a slave. You are God's child. This established for them the ground of personal dignity. This individual now feels that he counts. Even death becomes a little thing. To the degree to which a man knows this, or a woman, of course, that he is a child of God, he is unconquerable from within and without. I'll say it again. To the degree to which a person knows this, that he's a child of God, he or she cannot be conquered from within or from without. Now, Paul, so, so Thurman understood that we live in a world that seeks to destroy our God-given identity, regardless of its context, but especially in his context of racism. So, so he knew that the only place was God. Now, Paul knew this too, the apostle. So when he writes this book of Ephesians, 
It is a major theme is who are you? And how do you understand your own self-identity? And uh, so this little short book of six chapters, and we've been in it now for a number of weeks, and I, I hope, I want to encourage you, please read the six chapters. You know, read it, meditate on it. It's a tremendous little book. Paul writes it from a prison in Rome, and he writes back to this Ephesian church. And uh, again, his main purpose, the first three chapters, is your identity. And then in the last three chapters, four, five, and six, he basically works it out practically. What does that look like as a disciple of Jesus? Uh, in, you know, in the marketplace, in your marriage, etc. So, but to, to get to understand the book and what we're going to do today in Ephesians 5, you've got to appreciate the context of Ephesus. Now, here's the city of Ephesus in the first century. It's present-day Turkey. It's, a, it's in a province called Asia Minor in the Roman Empire. Now, uh, let me try to give you a feel for it before we read the text, and hopefully it'll make some more sense to you why Paul says what he says. So, Ephesus is a capital city. Uh, it's actually the biggest city of Asia Minor. It's got a quarter million people in it, which in that day is massive. It's, a, it's, a, it's like a Hong Kong. It's east and west, all the seaport passed through there. It's, it's, like, it's like a combination of New York City and Los Angeles all wrapped in one. It's a place to go move to where the trends are. It's happening. It's cosmopolitan. And uh, it's a place of power, commercial power, political power. Uh, and it's got, for example, a famous amph amphitheater that sat 25,000 people. Could you imagine? In 60 AD. And uh, it was a beautiful city, a magnificent city. It had all these temples to foreign gods. But the most famous was a temple to Artemis. In fact, this temple to Artemis overlooked the whole city as they built it. It was one of the seven wonders of the world at that time. So just like people come to New York and they go, to, you know, they go up the World Trade Center, Empire State Building, people travel from all over the world to go see Artemis, the goddess of, of Artemis, because they believed that this goddess and this temple fell from the sky. And that if you got near Artemis, you were going to get blessed, okay? They sold all kinds of lucky charms and stuff, and they're very superstitious, around um, Ephesus. So what made this uh, temple of Artemis so significant around the world was she was a, um, a fertility goddess. In other words, uh, she, she was all kinds of sexual activity to get the blessing. So there, were, there was eunuchs in the temple, there was religious prostitutes in the temple, but it was understood that Artemis, if you went to her and had sex with these priests and priestesses, you'd have protection in your pregnancy and long life and childbirth and all that stuff. And uh, so people were attracted from around the world to go to Ephesus to go to this goddess of Artemis and uh, this whole seductive sexuality thing that went on there. But on top of that, not only in Ephesus was a center for Artemis and her worship, but also was a center for, for the worship of the Roman emperors. And the Roman emperors, understand that they were considered little gods. They were divine. They, they were to be worshipped. In fact, if you go there today on one of those archaeological tours, they will take you to like inscriptions in temples that were temples that were built to Roman emperors. And it will see things like, you know, glory and honor, you know, to you. Uh, uh, sovereign Lord, you are worthy. All the terms that we use for Jesus were actually originally used for the Roman emperor. And uh, Romans, believe, imagine you would go to the marketplace like Wall Street in that day in, in Ephesus, and before you conducted business as a business person, you would first pledge allegiance to the God, whoever was the emperor at that time. So, so it wasn't easy to be a Christian in this place, all right? It was no joke as a, you're a parent trying to raise kids there. And, uh, and so the Roman Empire, at least within the Mediterranean world there, it was the greatest empire that had ever existed for the Mediterranean world. And uh, it was wealthy, it was dazzling, it was, and they brought safety and security and wealth to everybody on a scale up to this point unknown. 
And uh, so people in, in this Roman Empire, they had installed a culture. They understand there was a culture called the Greco-Roman culture. It was pagan, and it was built on money and greed and prosperity. And it basically, everything was impacted by it. Business, politics, the Olympics, the athletics, religion. All of life was dominated by the Roman Empire. So understand, Paul shows up in the city of Ephesus in his second missionary journey. Acts chapter 19. He shows up and he basically rents a hall and starts preaching every day. Okay, for two years. And so he tells people basically, let me get you in reality. Caesar is not on the throne. Nero is not on the throne. Domitian is not on the throne. Jesus is on the throne. And at this point, he preaches the gospel and Christ died and rose from the dead and people start coming to Christ and a church is born. But then eventually he's got to leave and he ends up in a prison in Rome and he writes this letter. In this letter, he's going to talk about discipleship because they're trying to figure out how do I do this thing in, in, in real life? And uh, so he writes this letter here and, uh, and gets them started. So, but, to, but, but I was, as I was, we're going to read the text. As we read this text, you're going to notice this text is harsh. And I'm like saying, I'm, I'm reading it and over and over again, I'm thinking, why is Paul so like, he almost sounds a little bit nasty. And I, as I just, so I just had to step back and just start reading the book of Ephesians over and over again, just pondering where is Paul coming from? And it all clicks at, oh my gosh, oh my goodness. Because when Paul thinks of these Christians in Ephesus, he understands there are two planes of existence going on at the same time. There is the earthly plane where I'm going to work, I'm going to school, I got my family, but there's also a spiritual plane with angels and demons and all this exciting stuff going on on this time, and they're both going on at the same time. So you'll notice in every chapter, he, he has these phrases. Oh, yeah, God has blessed you, chapter 1, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. He's always referring to the heavenly realms because Paul is living in a reality where the spiritual life going on around us right now, there are angels and there are demons. There's a spiritual reality even going on around us right now in this room. And so he writes things like our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against powers, against rulers, against the authority, against the powers of this dark age, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And he's actually talking about a hierarchy, that there are demonic powers going on around us there, but he's saying to the Ephesians, you have to understand, it's not just this Roman culture you're dealing with. It's not just the goddess of Artemis and all these other pagan gods. Behind all of that are demonic powers. And their goal is to cut you off from Jesus, to suck the life out of you with Jesus and isolate you from the body of Christ. That is their goal. And so you're not just struggling with a bit of a conflict here with somebody. It's deeper that's going on here. And so when he writes this, he is like being straight on. He is like, I got to shoot it to you straight here because you are in a battle for your life. Now, he understands that Jesus is risen from the dead, that the reason the Son of God came was to destroy the works of the devil. He's got that. Satan and Jesus are not co-equal. Jesus is the Lord. But he understands that unless we're connected to Jesus, the powers of evil will overwhelm you. you got to catch that. That there's a power there, and it's a real power, but when you're disconnected to Jesus, you're in trouble. And so this whole book cannot be understood unless you get the fact that as far as Paul's concerned, as we're concerned here, there's a real spiritual reality going on around all of us and around these Christians in Ephesus. So again, I don't want you to get crazy because I used to be crazy about the demonic. You know, years ago, if my wife was upset with me, I, I was like, in the name of Jesus, cast that thing out, all right? 
If I hit traffic on the LIE, in the name of Jesus, all right? It wasn't the fact that I left late, you know, was at this traffic, you know. Or we had a conflict. I know that was Satan, okay, coming at you, correcting me like that. How dare you, you know? So, so I'm not asking you to get crazy, all right? But what I want you to do is, is take, get the reality. The Bible, this, this is a really important part of understanding what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And Paul can't talk about things without that always being in the background. And because our world's not thinking that way. So let's read the text. Oh, I'm sorry. So, so here's the fog. Our title of the message is Seeing God in the Fog. Some of you are in a fog. Now, what happens when you live in this kind of a world, this kind of spiritual intensity like the city of Ephesus or the city of New York, it is very easy to get lost. You can't even see straight. Where is God? I don't know where I'm going. And, and you know, if you study fogs, there are Thin fogs and thick fogs. New York is a thick fog, all right? Some of you are listening on, you know, live stream or you got a thick fog and who knows where you are, Kansas as well. But how do we see God? And what's happening is the Ephesians are trying to live out their Christian faith in, in, in places like their marriages and their sexuality and the workplace and parenting and family. And as you all know, that's where it gets really hard. I would say it's easy to be a Christian in church. It's just tough we have to leave, you know. And so let's read a text and, uh, together, and uh, then I'll make a few comments, all right? So Ephesians 5, verses 1 to uh, 5. Well, actually, 1 to 8. Become imitators of God as dearly loved children and walk in love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So basically, that first verse, he's summarizing the first three chapters. So, and I, li I, I like that verse. It's nice. But now he gets a little bit nasty. But among you, he writes, there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality or any kind of impurity or of greed. Underline that word greed because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be any obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, which are out of place but rather thanksgiving. For this you can be sure, no immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a man as an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of God and of Christ. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of such things, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore, do not be partners with them. For you were once darkness, but now you are children of light. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness. Now, I don't know about you, but like, I'm like looking for Paul to say, love is patient, love is kind, you know, be nice, you know. I mean, it's like, it's like, it's very, like, intense. So, so, again, he starts out by reminding them, you're dearly loved children. And you'll see why this is so important later. And just, he always starts, like, let me summarize the last few chapters here. You're dearly loved children. You are not a slave. You're God's child. That's who you are. You're significant. You're important. You're loved you're secure. You're, you're, you don't have to measure up to anybody. You don't have to earn anything. You're unique and you're beautiful just the way you are. And I love you, says the Lord. And you've got an inheritance that you're not going to get when somebody dies. Jesus already died and rose. It's already yours. So you're loved. And then he gets the harshness. You know, you are once darkness, but now you're children of life. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness. And, and, and you've got this, this, this cut here. And you got to, you know, just, I stepped back and I was like, what is he doing here? And I got it. Once I understood Ephesus, it made sense to me. Because you understand that there's, there are demonic powers 
and he knows you cannot play with this. So I'm just going to I'm just gonna focus on there's two big issues, greed and sexuality. I'll spend most of the time on, on greed and success as we know it. It's so significant. Let me just try to unpack it a little bit for you. The invitation of Jesus is this, that we are cultural atheists. So in other words, my sermon here, I'm asking you to become an atheist to the culture, that we do not believe in the religion of the culture. And that's what he's saying to them right here. Do you understand? We're to turn our back on the goals of the entire world, which is success, awards, salaries, promotions, special positions. They may come, but I don't care because it's not my religion. And uh, we don't believe in that. The most common religion in the world, friends, is success. Success. If you can think, what's the most common religion? It's that. And the world's religion is get more. Success, climb the ladder. You know what's funny? Be a go-getter, relentlessly. You know, even in prison, now I've not been to prison personally for an extended period of time, but I have many friends who have. And I love hearing the stories about how they're jockeying for position and power in the prison system itself. It, it's human nature. We want to succeed, even in prison, to get to the top. And, um, and, and so... Today, our, our big thing for, for success is, and is what greed is, is, is we have these success seminars. And it's a multi-billion dollar business. And I'm sure you've been to some type of one along the way. And probably one of the most popular uh, is a guy named Tony Robbins. Some of you may know him. Over four million people have gone to his seminars. And there's the website, Unleash the Power Within. Now, I want you to understand, like, there's different levels of going to this, con going to his three-day, three-and-a-half-day seminar. Depending on what seat you get is how much you're going to pay. And there's thousands of people in these pictures I'm looking at, and I wanted a diamond seat, which means towards the front, and that's going to cost me $2,395, okay, for three days. So here's what it says. If you go to this seminar, what's promised to you, it says stop settling for less. Create a life that is filled with achievement and reward. Develop skills to defy your limitations. Become a stronger, more resourceful, and more powerful person. Winners find a way, and Tony Robbins can help you get there. Push this button. <laughs> In some ways, Jesus and Paul here, indict all success seminars. In other words, we are not climbing. I'm not saying we're against going to some of these things, but we're not climbing an upward ladder. We are going down a ladder to actually serve people. We have a different ladder we're on completely. And uh, what happens is we end up in a fog when we get wrapped up in this. We just get lost. We can't see straight. And uh, what, what happens, we, we hear these false prophets that are demonically driven that say, if you, you need a lot of money for security for your future. You, you need it. In fact, in fact, you need a lot of people that like you if you're going to really be happy. You better get a lot more Instagram followers and Facebook and Snapchat and all that stuff. You get really popular, you'll be really happy. But you see, for us, we're atheists culturally to all that. That's what Paul's saying. Cut it. 
You are not to participate in that. In that. Because for you, your ambition and success for you as a, as a Jesus follower is to impress the Father. Do you understand? For us, it's to hear the Father look at your life at the end of your life on the day of judgment. That he looks at you and he says, well done. Great job. You wake up in a day, that's why you say, Lord, what would you have me do today? That is the number one question we have. That's why we say you shall have no other gods before you. Actually, you could read, you shall have no other goals before me. Jesus is our treasure, and he's our goal, and he is our life. Not that we don't have other goals. We have all kinds of goals. That's good to have goals for other things. But they're sub-goals. The goal for us as a follower of Jesus, he wants these these Ephesians to get it. Friends, you're not part of that whole system. You're a cultural atheist to it. There are other gods, and you walk away from it. So we don't say to people, hey, man, look at the car I drive. Or you should know what I got my 401k. Or you know what? I live in New York. Where do you live? Kansas? Oh, man, Kansas. That's rough. Oh, my God, you know. Or my degree. I got a degree, and I got PhD, whatever, you know, it's like, no, we don't, we don't, you know what I'm saying? We're not in that game. We don't believe in that game. We look at nobody from a worldly point of view. Paul writes that in 2 Corinthians 5, you know, 16. So, so, you understand, think of your family for a second. Think of your ethnicity, your culture, uh, going back generations. And what did your family or ethnicity say to you would mean that you're significant? For example, most of us well have a lot of money. Or it'd be like, well, get a job that's really respectable. Or get a certain educational degree. Then you're, then you're somebody. Or it might be, you know, have it look a certain way, appearance and beauty. Or it might be get a title next to your name. Uh, I don't know what it was for you. But I want you to catch this, everybody. Those things put you into a fog. Now, a, 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 um, a few months ago, I went to a movie theater in New Jersey. And at that movie theater, after the movie, I went to the bathroom. I know you're saying, who cares? I know, I went to the bathroom. <laughs> but as I walked in this bathroom, and obviously, you know, it's not very smooth, but I saw this, like, plaque on the wall. And I'm like, oh, my gosh. So I took a picture. And it said, this urinal <laughs> is dedicated to George H. Moffat, a devoted user and favorite Palace Theater Beach Cinema patron since 1935. Now, do you understand, like, what Paul is saying is, if you run after these things, this is what you're going to get. You may get a plaque in the bathroom with your name on it, but it's not worth anything. It's a God of this world, and you want to be an atheist to that because we belong to Jesus. So greed and that upward mobility ladder, that God of getting ahead, don't bow to that. And then he's, just, he's going to mention sexuality a, couple, a few times as well because our sexuality in Ephesus was huge just like it is for us in our culture as well. And it's very interesting because we want to, you know, we want sexuality on our own terms and 
inability to say no and all that and just do whatever we want. And, and Christianity was a shock to the Greco-Roman Empire, its whole understanding of sexuality, protecting and honoring people's dignity within the covenant of marriage. I mean, just, it, was, it was never heard of before, like, like, except for the Jew, Jews, Jews, but they'd never heard this kind of a sexual ethic. I was in Manhattan a few months ago, and I was walking on 34th Street, and I'm at Herald Square. And as I'm walking, I look up, and there's these gigantic murals for Victoria's Secret, like a bunch of them. And, and then I look up, and I said, and basically they're saying, stare at me. <laughs> stare at me. And I said, no. <laughs> and I said, no. And then I walked around the block to my meeting, and then it's 1 o'clock in the afternoon. It's a very nice day out. And then this young girl who's got a very low-cut outfit on in front of the gentleman's club I was passing, she hands me this flyer, invites me in. And I'm thinking, it's 1 o'clock in the afternoon. And I'm just like, wow, you know. But I'm just aware, like, I'm just trying to go to a meeting over here. <laughs> but that, be, that behind the success thing of the culture that says to you, you better work your tail off to show that you measure up and you're not a loser. Kill yourself, you gotta, but don't be a loser. That God, you don't bow to that. At the same time, our sexuality as well, we don't let the, let the demonic powers destroy us in that either, married or single. I'm thinking, I'm, a, I'm like a married man. Like, these folks are trying to get into my marriage. I'm just trying to go to a meeting. <laughs> but you have to appreciate that behind what seems so harmless are powers and principalities that will, just, that will basically cut your legs out from under you and cut you off from Jesus and get you in guilt and shame and basically isolate you from the body of Christ. And before you know it, you're in a fog. So I don't know where I am, and I'm so confused. I don't know what happened to me. That's where the Ephesians are living. It's so easy because it's everywhere. And they were living in that just like we are today, you know, in the West. You know, I, I, um, you know have you ever seen this documentary? It's called The Queen of Versailles. Good. Don't watch it. It's a documentary. I think it's on Netflix. And it's, it's about this couple, and he's a super millionaire, and his wife. And she wanted to build a house that would be the biggest house in the United States, 90,000 square feet, all right? I don't know if you can appreciate what that means, but like her, her, her closet is 4,000 square feet, just her closet. And she says it's too small. The dogs have their own rooms, okay? And it's, it's, it's so obscene, the need to be like, you know, Biggest house, most beautiful house. And she wants to be like the Versailles in France, the palace there. And, and up going, it's funny, they end up going bankrupt. It's so funny, you know. Then they end up back. Now they're, they're still building and all this. But it, it shows you, what, what, the reason it's such an important show, because it's so ludicrous. It's so absurd. It is, it is, and I said, this is what the culture we live in tells us we need. And actually seduces us that it's never enough and wants our energy to go in this direction. That's why, friends, in some ways we can say, yes, I am an atheist towards the culture. I don't believe in that God. I believe in Jesus. 
you know, and I follow him. So the question is, how do I do this? Tertullian was a, was a, a Christian, a brilliant Christian writer in the year 200 AD. And he wrote this book called On the Shows. And because he was writing to the early Christians living in places like Rome and Ephesus and saying, how do you live out discipleship when you're surrounded by this kind of a pagan culture? And, you know, the gladiator shows and the theater and all this pagan stuff going on. You know, just business was wrapped up in sexuality. It was really difficult to be a Christian. And basically, he calls them, and if I was going to apply what he says to us today, here's what he would say. When we go to the movies, when we watch TV, when we read novels, when we surf the Internet, we exercise a wise selectivity. We're constantly vigilant and we actually consistently renounce the gods of the culture because we serve another god. So here's my question. What do you do when you're in a fog? How, how are you going to leave here? How are you going to walk out this door and go to work tomorrow? Or some of your moms at home or dads at home. How, how do we not end up in a fog and we're lost? Because that's what Paul's trying to get to the Ephesians. So again, he gives them this very this whole letter of uh, ch six chapters. So I'm going to give you three things. Now I'm going to ask, as I give you these three things, I'm going to ask, write them in your phone, scribble them somewhere. Because I'm going to ask that you do them this next week. In other words, that I hope that you've got some kind of a life of devotional life with God. At New Life, we talk a lot about daily offices, um, meeting with God each day, maybe twice a day, three times a day. But it's, we, want, we, we, we want you, everything in us wants to equip you to develop a deep, prayer life. And prayer is simply communion with Jesus. It's abiding in Jesus. It's remembering Jesus. And if you, again, as you read the six chapters of Ephesians this week, I hope, you'll notice prayer is all over the six chapters. It's everywhere. I mean, he's praying constantly, telling us to pray, and he ends the book after talking about powers and principalities by saying this, and above all the armor of God, pray in the spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests and he calls them to a life of prayer that your life is one of abiding in Jesus because he knows that unless we somehow figure out how do I have this relationship with Jesus a living relationship with this person of Jesus that I'm basically in all through the day I don't stand a chance against the gods of this culture so what I'm going to give you is three um, I don't know I guess tips that to me come out of this text that you can take home and I can take home with me um, as part of your prayer time with him, okay? So he starts to see God in the fog, one, in prayer. So, so we, you need some time to be with him. Receive God's love. And it starts that first verse, as dearly loved children. Um, now, let me do an exercise with you to start this. Imagine God is thinking about you right now. He sees you. He looks at you. He's thinking about you. What do you think is going through his mind as he looks at you? What's he feeling? Say, I think most of us would say, he's sad. Because he knows I'm not quite up to it. He's disappointed. He's frustrated. Some of you would say, I think he's angry. Okay? And uh, or he, some of you would say, he's a disguster. One person said to me, I think he's saying, I made a mistake with this one. <laughs> I should never have brought them in. Okay, now I want you to get that. That's not the God of the Bible. That's the God of pagan mythology. Christianity, unlike all other world religions, has a God who loves us without conditions, who loves us without any strings attached. The problem was many of us have a God of our own projections 
that comes out of our family of origin. So we actually read the Bible with a filter as if we're, as our parents screaming at us. Here's how we read this text. As dearly loved children. Here's what you read. As dearly loved children. Get it together, buster. You know, like, like we kind of read that filter into it. And it's like, be still and know that I'm God. Be still, will you? Listen up. And, and it's amazing. We have this God in, of, of our projections in our minds that's just like, it's like another God. It's not the God of the New Testament. It's not the God who Jesus revealed to us when he came to earth. It's kind of like a Coke machine God. And what that looks like is we, we, we come to God, it's like a transaction. Like I put the six quarters, I don't know how expensive your Coke machine is, eight quarters, 20 quarters. You put your quarters in, you get your Coke, right? You don't put the quarters in, you don't get the Coke. All right, we approach God like that. Okay, God, I obey you. I prayed enough. I've been good. Now bless me. That's it, right? It's kind of, it's a transaction. So God is that Coke machine. The problem is that's not the God of the Bible. God says, receive my love. It's just, it's, right now you may be in rebellion. You may be, you may, you may have shut God out. You may be just, you may just, I'm, I'm living my own life, God. I'm here because I'm doing you a favor. You're blessed that I'm in the room. All right, even if that's your attitude, he still loves you. Do you understand? He loves you not based on your performance. He just simply loves you. It's so hard because like nothing's free in life. Who loves you like that? The answer is nobody but God. So I want to, you know, offer you a a prayer and maybe take a picture of this with your phone. And I I, I read something like this and I kind of played around with it and fixed it up a bit. And I've been praying it myself, you know, certain days of the week. And I want to ask you next week, pray this prayer. In your time alone with God, just say, you know, take a picture of it and pull it out. But you got to kind of pray it slowly because you got to kind of, it's so hard to believe. You know, Father, you're sitting there like this. You're sitting and you're like, okay, Father, you know, I am deeply loved by you. That's a tough pill to swallow. Made in your image. You're, you delight in being with me. I mean, you know what? If you had a, if you never experienced that from your parents, that's a really tough pill to swallow. You may say, I don't think anybody's ever delighted in being with me. I mean, maybe if I behaved or maybe if I accomplished something, they delighted. But if I didn't accomplish something, I didn't get the delight. It was conditional. This is not conditional. You delight in being with me as I am. You gotta get it. It's not based on you were good today or bad today. It just delights in you. Wrap me in your presence. Shower me in your tenderness and unconditional love. I mean, I... Pray that slowly. Think about those words. Shower me in your tenderness and love, I like to add, that has no strings attached. You know, my, my whole life, all the love I ever got had lots of strings attached. My family was very clear. You don't obey, you're out. Good Italian-Americans. You're out of here. You're dead, okay? We'll break your legs. So we got the message good and clear. So this was like very hard. Like we, we believe in grace in our heads. We just don't believe it for ourselves. So we start our prayer lives by receiving, and Paul, again, identity. You are not a slave. You're God's dearly loved child. And as, as Thurman said so well, Howard Thurman said, this, this will change your whole life. Changes everything. All right, next is you listen for God's voice. And um, uh, again, later in the chapter, chapter 5, verses 15 to 17, he says this. When you're a fog, be very careful then how you live. So you got to be, be careful. I'm walking down the street, 
and the, and the billboard calls my name, right? So be very careful how you live, not as unwise, but as wise. We're selective. Making the most of every opportunity. Now, the word for opportunity is a very interesting word. It's words for time, and there's two words for time in Greek, chronos and kairos. But the word kairos means this. Making the most of every opportunity, that's the word of God is acting, and there's moments that God's going to be acting around you. He's moving. So he goes, you're looking for the, you look, you're, you're like, okay, God, I'm receiving your love now. I'm listening for your voice. And you, and you say, okay, God, how are you coming to me? What are you doing right now? But you're, you're open to watching God move. You're listening to see God in the fog. And then he says, don't be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. We serve a living God who is active and is coming in ways that we never dreamed of. And so, and so nothing is more important than obviously seeing God in the fog, knowing God's will. So I have a friend um, whose brother recently died. And for decades, his brother had, been, uh, was, had schizophrenia, uh, was unable to function, for decades lived in uh, mental institutions, hospitals, and recently died. And he shared with me, he goes, Pete, what's amazing about it, his brother was a Christian as well, but he had become a Christian, very simple faith. He goes, I learned, and he took care of his older brother for all these years. He says, it's, what's so amazing is I met God, and I've learned more about God from him than anything else in my entire life. Like, I never expected to hear and meet God through his life the way I have. And I know I've read in books about people like John Vanier and, you know, and living a mental, severely mentally and intellectually disabled and physically disabled, you know, adults, and then meeting God. But he goes, I actually experienced it. It's true. So you may, have, you may be going through a, a tremendous dark night or of a wall in your life right now, you know, where someone died or a cancer diagnosis or you've lost your job or you know, a disillusioning church experience or a betrayal. And you say, I don't, I, don't, I don't know where God is. I want to tell you, in prayer, you want to say, okay, God, I don't see anything, but I'm open. Because here's the truth. God is in everything. I want you to think about that. Write that down somewhere. Now, I'm not saying God is not the author of evil, okay? He's impossible for God to, to, to do such a thing. But there is evil in the world, and evil things happen. And all I'm saying is that somehow God works in, through, and in spite of evil. And he's so big and good, our God, he even comes in those situations if we listen. God is somewhere even the most horrific things. Just think of the most, the worst moment of human history was Jesus' crucifixion. It was actually the best moment of human history. All right? So, so, God is just an amazing God. I'm not saying I understand the, the, the suffering in the world, because I don't. But I do know this. God's alive, and God is moving, and God is speaking to you and to me in the midst of the world in which we live. And then finally, the last one is to see God in the fog, in prayer. I receive his love. I listen for his voice. And then I breathe in God's power. Now, you understand, like, like, the word there, fill, is like moment by moment. Be filled. Be, be continually filled. The word, blessed are the poor in spirit. The word, when Jesus says, you are blessed if you're poor, that's the, in Greek, there's many words for poor. It is, that's the word for the poorest of the poorest of the poor. These are folks who are at the bottom of the bottom of the barrel. So he's saying, if you recognize you are at the bottom of the bottom, you're helpless, spiritually, emotionally, psychologically, if you're able to say, this is you, 
He says, now you're in a place to receive from me. I want you to catch that. That's blessed are the poor in spirit. That's the opening words of the the Matthew, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. That, friends, is the posture of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. I recognize I'm living in a culture that wants to give me an identity from other gods. Success, sexuality, and all that stuff, and screaming at me. But I'm a servant of Jesus. And so I recognize I want to receive his love, that my, my identity is coming from him and no external source, what other people think. I want to be listening to his voice because otherwise I don't know where I'm going. And then thirdly, I want to be receiving his power because I cannot live for Jesus apart from Jesus. I need the Holy Spirit's power. So with that, let me invite the worship team to come on forward. And so I'm going to invite you to take these three things, write them down somewhere, and this week, sit down, and when you start your morning prayer or evening prayer, try it. And watch what God does for you in just these seven days. So with that, we're going to, take, we're going to do something now in community because what's so interesting is that if you go on with the passage in, in, in uh, Ephesians 5, and he says, be filled with the Spirit, and then he goes, sing and give thanks to your heart with one another you know, to God. And this is meant to be done together, not in isolation. So we're going to take the Lord's table together. And uh, I'm going to invite you to stand with me, all right, for just a moment. And we're going to, take, we're going to get ready. Because if we're going to, so let's all stand. If we're going to see God in the fog and the enormous pressure we're under, we actually need each other as well. So one of the gifts is of the culture uh, uh, is the Lord's Supper. So let me just, let me invite you to take your hand, nice image, and grab the hand of God. This woman, Flora Mueller, said it this way, go into the darkness. Oh, put that back. Mike, put that back. She says, go into the darkness and put your hand into the hand of God. That will be better for you than a light and safer than a known way. In other words, you must say, I want some light about where to go. I want to know where I'm going. Well, you know what? That's okay. But what's even better than that is to put your hand in the hand of God. Because if you put your hand in the hand of God, everything's going to be okay. That's a better way to go. So this Lord's table is an opportunity for us to say, my identity is in Jesus. who I'm his dearly loved child. He died for me. He shed his blood for me. He invites me at a table. Who's invited to the table of the Lord? You, you can't come based on your performance. You come based on the performance of Jesus. We come in his name, not our name. It's a free table of grace, and we invite you to come. So what we're going to do is we're going to invite you to take the, you'll take the bread, you'll dip it in the cup, and you'll take it back to your seat, and then we're all going to partake uh, together. So let me just take a minute and pray, and uh, then we'll kind of line up. We've got, we've got uh, places to get the bread in the cup around the room. And I said, bow your head for just a moment. So, Lord, set apart these elements now by the Holy Spirit for us now in this room, for your people, that we may faithfully partake of you inside of us, your life in us by the Holy Spirit, that we might receive your love, we might hear your voice. Lord, we might be filled with power. So meet us, I pray, in the name of Jesus. Amen. Okay, let's begin, everybody, as we worship together. 
So as the Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed, he took bread and when he'd given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way after supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you do it in remembrance of me. And so we pray this prayer. And this prayer comes, it's, it's, a, it's a 500 year old prayer actually. It comes from the Book of Common Prayer. And it, what I like about it, it's short, but like it covers all those things that we don't even know what we did. You know, it's once been said to me, Pete, if you knew more than, we may only know 1% of the sins we commit because God knows if we knew them all, we'd be overwhelmed. He loves us that much. But this one kind of covers all the things we don't know about. I always tell God, forgive me for that too. And so we're gonna pray this corporately together, all right, from the top and, and um, what I've done, I love that. And what I've done and what I've left undone, sins of omission and commission. All right, let's pray it out loud together before we take communion. Almighty God, my heavenly Father, I have sinned against you through my own fault, in thought, in word, in deed, in what I have done and what I have left undone. For the sake of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, forgive me all my offenses and grant that I may serve you in newness of life to the glory of your name. You are not a slave, but I'm not a slave, I'm your child. Let's partake together of the bread. So as we close here, we've got, we'll have some prayer teams up here to your right, and we'll move, we're gonna be moving the chairs out, all right, but we can still pray for a few folks up here to your right. Please come. You know, I like what Anne Lamott, I read this past week, she goes, every, she's a Christian writer, she goes, everyone's screwed up, broken, clingy, and scared. I thought, that's pretty good. I like that. We all need God. So open your hands up towards heaven. Let's just receive a blessing as we leave here. So if you're in a fog today and oppressed and wandered and not sure where you're going or someone you know is in a fog, come forward for prayer and we'll pray for you, okay? And God will touch you. Just receive now a blessing. May the Lord bless you and may the Lord keep you and may the Lord make his face shine on you. And may you be given the capacity to receive the beams of the love of God for you. May God open up your eyes and heart to receive such a love that surpasses knowledge, that's bigger than all the oceans of the earth, that your spirit might be able to absorb the love of God for you. And may it soak into you and change you and give you the courage to be free from what people think or climbing a ladder to impress someone from building monuments in urinals to yourself that are worthless. And may God give you the grace to make Jesus your treasure and your goal. And thus may your life be a blessing to the world. And I pray this in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. Thank you, everybody. God bless you.